Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see you all this morning. And we are continuing our study of Titus. And uh, if you are able to turn to your own copy of God's Word this morning, we are going to complete Titus chapter 2. It's uh, an amazing passage. We'll look forward to spending time in together. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you have given us this spectacular Lord's Day. Father, thank you for the sun, the warmth. Thank you for uh, the safe and uh, dry and warm place where we are meeting today. Thank you for giving us believers, fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ with whom we're sitting today. And thank you for giving us your word for us to study today. Father, we pray that you will bless the study of your word to the increase of our faith and our faithfulness and to your glory in the church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One of the most bracing realities about the book of Titus is how candidly it deals with the problems in the church that have occasioned Paul sending Titus and then writing him this particular epistle. It's difficult sometimes for us to talk about trouble in the church because it's sometimes even difficult to have all the right categories for it. It's, it's actually normal for there to be good, good discussion in the church. It's not normal, it's only not normative for there to be a, a lack of fellowship or a, a breach in the fellowship. It's, it's good when there's a lively discussion and conversation in a church. It's very bad when it turns to the kind of things which is uh, detailed here, that, that you have patterns such as gossips and slander and other things like that. And so one of the things that's hard to talk about is how you know the difference between a healthy church, which will have some vigorous discussions, and an unhealthy church where it's vigorous disunity. But the situation in Crete is more than just disunity. And one of the things we're going to see this morning is that there is a New Testament assertion about conflict in the church. And you will find this repeatedly throughout the New Testament. There's a New Testament diagnosis and a New Testament resetting. It's always going to be theological. The Apostle Paul and the other apostles, when confronted with a problem in a church, it's interestingly, the pastorally, they dealt with the problem, but then they refused to stop with this particular problem. They pressed on to the underlying issue, which was some deficient understanding of the gospel. And that's exactly what we find here. You know, just as we began looking at Titus, the conflict in Crete is so upfront, so central, so, to use the political language of the, the day, so top of mind, that the Apostle Paul begins with unmistakable words. You know, this is why I left you in Crete, he said in chapter 1, verse 5, that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town, and go on and on and on. For there are many, verse 10, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. It's kind of strong language. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, but they ought not to teach. Uh, the situation's dire. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, 
Okay, now, I want that verse to be in our minds. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. What we discussed when we were looking at that verse is that the word sound is a deeply resonant New Testament word which has an analogy the way we talk about someone's health being sound or a building being sound. That means it's healthy. And uh, what you see here is that that is linked to doctrine. That is, that is linked to right teaching. A recovery is going to be a theological recovery. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. They may be sound in behavior, in congregationalism. No, in the faith. Okay, so that turns out to be so important that in chapter 2, the first assignment given to those who are the elders, and particularly to Titus himself, is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So if you're going to have a sound church, it's going to be based upon sound doctrine. And that turns out to be the first and foremost responsibility of Titus there in Crete and uh, also of the elders who are to be appointed. And then, of course, we saw the qualifications of elders and, and we saw the particular exhortations given. We saw the chiastic structure here, which it was to uh, older men than older women, younger women than younger men, all been giving marching orders. The focal passage of our concern today is what follows in verses 11 and following of chapter 2. Let's just remind ourselves of how it ended uh, with uh, the direction showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So verse 10, showing all good faith, and then that clause, so that in, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our Savior. Now, this appears to be something we might not have considered before. It actually has to work both ways, doesn't it? If there's a capacity to adorn the doctrine, there's evidently a capacity to malign the doctrine. The logic that Paul is instructing Timothy in, Titus in this case, very similar Timothy in First and Second Timothy. The logic is that a church of bad behaviors implies a church of bad believers or deficient believers. At the very least, a misbehaving church is a slander against the gospel. A recovery can only come in gospel terms. And so what we have here at the end of verse 10, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn, and that, that means draw attention to in, in a praiseworthy way, the doctrine of God our Savior. So there is the doctrine. Now, every word here is important. You'll notice that there's a definite article in front of doctrine. That's very important, a definite article. The doctrine, not a doctrine, some doctrine, any doctrine, but the doctrine. This gets back to the New Testament's clear insistence that there are not multiple Gospels and there are not multiple Christianities. It is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, not to be delivered differently elsewhere at any other time, once for all delivered, certain definite doctrines. And here the definite article itself makes that point, may adorn the doctrine 
of God our Savior. But then what follows in just one paragraph is one of the most beautiful summaries of the Christian faith given anywhere. What is the gospel? What is the Christian faith? What is this faith once for all delivered to the saints? What is this doctrine which is the doctrine? What does this sound like? And this gets us to a very fascinating challenge in the Christian life. And and that challenge is this. How do we How do we summarize the gospel? Because we have to. Someone says, what do you Christians believe? We can't start in Genesis 1 and read through the last chapter of Revelation. The apostles faced the same situation. Well, what is it you believe? What is it you teach? In the New Testament, and particularly in the book of Acts and in the remainder of the New Testament, there are summary statements of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. Sometimes, those are introduced more or less by saying this is what the gospel is. Here, the Apostle Paul saying that once the church is rightly ordered and people are right behaving, they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He then decides to tell us what that is. Now, there's more to say about doctrine. There's more truth to be expressed. In a lesser but still significant sense, this is true of writing a hymn, right? How do you stop? I mean, there's more truth still to be told. There's more truth still to be sung, but you got to stop because the song will go on forever. How does anything stop? There's always more to be said. The great challenge in the Christian faith has never been, is there more to be said, but can you say this and leave anything out and still have the gospel. This led to the New Testament definition of the kerygma. That is to say, what is the bare minimum that must be known in order for authentic Christianity to exist? What is the apostolic kerygma? And basically it comes down to our plight and sin and then God's provision as promised to the prophets of old of a Messiah who would come, and the Son of God did come. He lived a sinless life. He revealed the gospel. He died on the cross in our place and was raised by the power of God on the third day so that salvation is declared to all who believe in him, repent of sins, and are his own. Now, there's more to it than that. that that's not the, the end. And that's why you look at a summary like the Apostles' Creed and you understand that that is enough so that someone can know how to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. But it has to conclude with the fact that he is not only the king who has come, but the king who is coming. All right. So in this particular passage, what is the Apostle Paul going to do? Notice how quickly that transition comes, just in the verse ahead, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, for, verse 11, and we're just going to read this passage together, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So right here in verses 11 through 14, this incredible summary, and it's, it's good just to hear it again. Uh, so hear this now as a summary of the Christian faith. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's a summary in about a minute. Read aloud, just about a minute if you time it. And, and so how much gospel can you put into a minute? Well, you can put a lot of gospel into a minute. The Apostle Paul just put the, the big picture of the gospel down to some of the specifics of the Christian faith into a minute. Now, remember, this is a letter to Titus, but it was meant to be read. And people were leaning in, no doubt, to hear what the Apostle Paul would have to say. This turning point in this very short letter, he turns from rebuking and exhorting and, and instructing in particular offices of the church, qualifications, et cetera, et cetera, how to deal with some of the problems in the church. He swerves into doctrine. Another reminder to us that doctrine is not the way into a problem, it's the way out of a problem. Churches that are allergic to doctrine are churches that are anemic, and they are going to be looking like Crete. Now, doctrine is not enough. <laughs> you know, you can have a church that has all the right doctrine engraved in stone, but if it's not a living faith, then it will not have the effect of producing a gospel people. Now, embedded in this is one phrase I want to think about more than any other, just for, I, I hope, a cause of fruitful and faithful consideration this morning. But we're going to walk through it. It begins with four, which is a very traditional apostolic way of saying, everything I just said depends upon this. How will he introduce the gospel? He says, the grace of God has appeared now, this is very interesting because if you take the four Gospels and you set them over, let's say, and compare with the prophetic word concerning the coming Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, you've got a lot of language to use, a lot of language. But in the New Testament and in the apostolic preaching, you have a reordering of language. Because you're on the other side of the gospel. You're on the other side of Christ. So just to say Jesus Christ is making this infinite, eternal, doctrinal statement. Right? The grace of God has appeared. I'm not a hymn writer. I wish someone would write one with that as the, the theme text. Grace of God has appeared. It's one of the sweetest, shortest summaries of the entire gospel. This is the consolation of Israel. This is what the prophets had foretold. This is what Israel has been praying for century after century. 
generation after generation. What's the shorthand for the gospel? The grace of God has appeared. For lo, is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Behold the Lamb who taketh away the sins of the world. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just the grace of God has appeared, and the grace of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the grace of God. But if you want to say, what split history in two? You can say the birth of Christ. What split history in two? The appearing of the grace of God. Now, this tells us something also just precious. Jesus is the grace of God. He is grace to us. He's infinite grace. The grace of God has appeared. Now, this means Jesus. It means what Jesus has done for us, his person and his work. It means the gospel about Jesus that we preach. The grace of God has appeared. Now, notice how it's described. Bringing salvation for all people. Well, I mean, it's going to make the Unitarian Universalist down the street here very happy to hear that. Is, 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 does it mean that now all people are saved everywhere? No, that obviously that's not the logic of the New Testament. It's not the logic of the preaching of Jesus. It's not the clear expression of the Great Commission. Paul here is not a universalist. Remember the context. The context in Crete is a distinction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And clearly in this passage, with that as the great theological ethical problem that occasioned Paul sending Titus, it, it's, it's to all people, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. The Apostle Paul will put this elsewhere when he says to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, Jew and Gentile. Circumcised and uncircumcised to all people. Notice the next phrase. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the gospel trains us. The grace of God trains us. Trains us to what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So there's a negative first. That's a very traditional rhetorical question. It's a very Aristotelian issue. Aristotle. It's famous rhetoric. Ancient Greece. If you have a strong argument to make, there's a positive and a negative. You lead with which one? Well, most classical rhetoricians will say you begin with not that in order to get to that. The rhetorical strategy, even as Aristotle understood, and of course most famous for his three-part argumentation, when there's a yes and a no, begin with the no and get to the yes. If there's a negative to be addressed and a positive to be addressed, it's not universal, it's not a gospel law, it's just an approach of rhetoric over time. You say the tough stuff, then you say the sweet stuff. The first thing he says about the gospel that has appeared, the grace of God that has appeared, the good news that has appeared, 
is that as a result of it, we should be renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. It's good to know. Ungodliness, easy to understand. Anything contrary to God's own character, anything contrary to the truth that God has revealed, and, and worldly passions, well, you know, it's, it's easy for us to go to the passions of the flesh, and they're certainly included in this, but the problems in the, the congregation at Crete were worldly passions like pride, ambition, sectarianism, just all things like that. So this means all of it. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and here's the positive, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-controlled, that's easy to understand. By the way, that's an old Greek ethical term. You know, at the very least, we, we should be living by even what the Greeks know was moderation, self-control. But there's something behind that, by the way. And, it, it, and so it links the worldly passions. Worldly passions is linked here to being self-controlled. Um, there's a long, long debate in, in ancient history, and it continues in some form today, but especially in, in ancient philosophy. Why do people act as they act? And, and the hard thing for a lot of people to deal with is the fact that we are homo sapiens. We name ourselves that. We're the rational creature, but we don't always act in rational ways, right? We just don't. What is the great rival to rationality? Passion. So we're told to renounce worldly passions. And, uh, and then we're, we're told to be self-controlled. Self-controlled means to have the passions in check. It doesn't mean you don't have the passions. It means you have the passions in check. Now let's fast forward to modern child psychology from ancient Greece. Let's leave Aristotle and go to Dr. Dobson. You know, let's just go, 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 go to... Uh, parenting advice. Uh, what, what was, what's one of the big things, and I was on the board of Focus on the Family for quite a long time, worked with Dr. Dobson. What was a big, one of the, some of the big things that Jim Dobson was known for? It was one of his teachings that if a, if a child does not have passions under control by, say, ages 10, 11, 12, disaster looms. That it's one of the main responsibilities of a parent, hopefully a lot earlier than that, but, but very quickly, because the child is unbridled passion, right? Between the two-year-old and a bowl of ice cream is passion. And as you know, to be a two-year-old, you expect the passions to be really, really volatile, right? I mean, it's one of the amazing things about being around a preschooler. They are more ecstatic than any rational person should be one moment. And they are more upset, experiencing tragedy, you know, sometimes seconds removed, also unreasonable. And it's just to look at a preschooler just left on her or his own, left on her or his own, that's where godly parents intervene. Godly parents don't reward, but rather suppress this giving in to passions. But if you, if you take a godly parent out of the picture, then the passions rule. 
And sometimes the passions show up not in preschoolers, they show up at school. Sometimes they show up later. It's, it's just a reminder of the fact that those passions are natural. They are there. It's a Christian responsibility to suppress those passions, not to give in to them. As the passage says here, uh, to be self-controlled, that's just a very important word. Upright and godly. Uh, upright we can understand. That's, uh, upright actually doesn't mean like standing up. It means corresponding to righteousness. That makes sense. And godly lives. I got to admit to you that when I was a teenager, this completely messed me up. Because this was not a part of the evangelical parlance that I was familiar with. And then I met Christians who use this word all the time. And it really threw me off. I was like 16 years old, 17. And uh, this is not a good thing. But I was raised in, uh, I, and I mean, the Lord used it, but I was raised in what I would consider to be a rather unhealthy evangelical spirituality. Marked, it was associated with the British movement known as Keswick. It was widespread in American evangelicalism, kind of the default. And uh, it, it, it spoke of living on a higher plane. It, it was sometimes called the higher life movement. And these were the best-selling books in devotion in the evangelical world for decades. And, and that's why I think certain Christians, such as many of you here, so much younger, you think there's always been a healthy evangelical spirituality in the modern age. Well, there hasn't always been. Hasn't always been. So where did it come from? Where did this healthy stream come from? It came largely by the recovery of Reformation theology and the recovery of the Puritans. And uh, the key person in this, on both sides of the Atlantic, was an Anglican theologian named J.I. Packer. And so Jim Packer, I came to know him later, Jim Packer, uh, he really helped to reintroduce the Puritans to evangelicals. His book, Knowing God, made a determinative change in my life. It was, it was like being handed medicine. Uh, but he used the word godly, and I just wasn't accustomed to hearing that. It sounded almost irreverent. Um, by the way, Banner True Trust in Scotland and, and then also with a location here in the United States started putting out all this Puritan material, reprinting all this Puritan material. And, uh, you know, it, it is some of the healthiest theological devotional material ever published, certainly in the English language, and it's now accessible in a way that it was not accessible 50 years ago. If you were to go back 50 or 60 years, you would not know as an evangelical many of these Puritan writers who are who we talk about all the time. It's just a reminder how much wisdom can be lost for, and, and you know, to have to be regained. But the word godly is why we're talking about this. And the word godly really threw me off because as a 16, 17-year-old, I was told, be godly. And I'm going, I recognize heresy when I hear it. Uh, you shall be as gods. I mean, it completely confused me. It took me a while. I actually did a New Testament word study. I had the Cruden's exhaustive concordance. And by exhaustive, I meant every single word, 
every time I was using the Bible. It was a giant thing. You can Google it now. It's instant. It wasn't instant when I was a kid. I invested $17.95 in Cruden's and Strong's exhaustive concordances. And you had to do it. So you have these big books the size of... I started to really make another mistake to say that it was the size of the yellow pages in a big city phone book. That, just again, shows an old man talking. Uh, to, uh, no, it was a, they, were massive, they were massive books. They, they probably weighed four or five pounds apiece. And you'd have to just go look up every word, and then you'd look up every passage. I had a Thompson Chain Reference Bible, and uh, that helped because sometimes it would jump from reference to reference to reference. That's what a chain reference was. I know it sounds strange, but the idea of a chain reference was that it was an entire system in a study Bible, which would get you to this reference, which would get you to that reference. It was a chain of, of references. All right. So I discovered that it's a New Testament word. And, and it made sense because it, it means behavior that is obedient to and which emulates God's commands and God's attributes. It's a major revolution in my teenage life and theology that the word godly is a summary for all those things that pertain to God and please God. It doesn't mean pretending to be God. That threw me off. It means believing and behaving and belonging as if God is God and we are His. Living godly lives. And you'll notice it's short in its entire expression. Godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, strange thing happened there. Did you notice it? It's very strange. I think it's strange. The sequence is wrong. Right? You've got Jesus coming again before his first coming is explained. That's exactly what happens. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now wait just a minute. If I've never heard this before, I'm a little confused. Because in verse 11, you just said that the grace of God has appeared. Now you say we're waiting for its appearing. It just goes to show how the, the Lord God Almighty turned Saul into Paul. It's an amazing conversion of the hater of the church into the apostle of the church. But Paul is so, claim, is so trained in rabbinical reasoning so trained in Torah in the Old Testament, so trained in rhetoric, he knows exactly what he's doing. The grace of God has appeared and it will appear. How's that? And, and think about that in two ways. Number one, the grace of God has appeared and it will appear. And this is an obvious reference to the second coming of Christ. And the point about will appear is it is both hope and judgment. In this case, hope. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
uh, if you're familiar with the uh, exegetical debate over this passage, it's, it's fairly ridiculous. It's just, I'll just make reference to it. When uh, Paul says here, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is, is he referring to one person in the Trinity or two? I think it's clearly one. Clearly one. Um, I think English translations get it basically just right. The glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, all speaking of Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. So we have, we have, the, we have redemption after the second coming in the reference, but it's because in a brilliant move, the Apostle Paul says we're waiting for the appearing of the grace of God coming. This is Jesus Christ. Oh, and remember, this is who he is, and this is what he did. It's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite summaries in the New Testament of the gospel. I just love this passage because it takes us a little bit by surprise, and it is such a beautiful, even glorious display of biblical truth in concision. who gave himself for us to redeem us, gospel, from all lawlessness. Now, remember, he says, stay away from lawlessness. So it, it's, it's, it's an argument that is of just incredibly sophisticated rhetoric. The enemies of the gospel give themselves to lawlessness. The people to whom the grace of God has appeared, they fight lawlessness, living self-controlled lives, and Christ came to rescue us from lawlessness. So in every way possible, the Apostle Paul has made very clear that where you find lawlessness, you find injury to the gospel, as in Crete. So even the doctrinal statement here about the appearing of the grace of God is particular to Crete in terms of what they need to hear, even in the sequence they need to hear it to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Again, glorious language the Apostle Paul uses. His own possession who are zealous for good works. You don't often hear evangelical Christians get to that. The persons... Sinners transformed by the gospel since the grace of God has appeared. They're not marked by lawlessness. They're also zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. That's why you find a rightly ordered church, right? You find a gospel church, you find people who are zealous for good works. Our hearts are certainly inclined towards Folks in Mississippi, particularly in the Delta, where the tornado hit, devastating, I think 25 or 26 people killed in Mississippi and Alabama, uh, one of them in Alabama, the rest in, in Mississippi. Pictures are truly horrifying. I mean, you're looking at pickup trucks in trees. Look at utter de devastation. Mayor of the, the one town just said, you know, we're We're looking at a town that's disappeared. This morning, as I was getting ready, the uh, media were reporting that people were on the ground. And one of the things they pointed out is they said, look, uh, church groups got here first. You know, again, you go, well, you know, 
just for national news to have to say that and Southern Baptist disaster relief is I think right now second to the American Red Cross in terms of people on the ground when you find God's people you find them zealous for good works there are a lot of good works that start real local just have to do with what takes place in a home just takes place in a neighborhood Sometimes being zealous for good works shows up after a tornado where even just reporters have to say, man, the churches got here quick. There's one phrase I said I wanted to pay most attention to in closing minutes. It's, uh, I think, the most important phrase other than the grace of God has appeared. That's, that's got to be the most important phrase. But there's a second phrase and I passed over it quickly because I knew I would go back to it. And so, and so look at this doctrinal statement. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, there it is. In the present age. Or just the present age. What in the world is this? I am uh, I'm facing the responsibility of mapping out writing projects for, say, the next decade and uh, working with publishers and all the people you have to work with. And um, I've got some books coming out in the next say, year or 18 months that are not a part of this. But this is, a, this is another 10-year you know, commitment. This is what we're looking at doing. And uh, by the way, that's different when you're 33 than when you're 63. Uh, there aren't that many of those 10s left. And uh, so I'm just trying to figure out, okay, how do I maximize this? Actually, the, the theme book, and they're, they're looking for a trilogy, but the theme book to head it off, I'm really considering titling The Present Age. And it's because of this passage and others like it in the New Testament. It's an amazing, an amazing phrase. I'm confessing to you, it has my mind and it has my heart right now in a way. Just trying to figure out what's going on in the world. The Present Age. So as you look at this, you recognize that the New Testament understanding of time is threefold. There are three segments of temporal understanding. And on either side of them is eternity. On either side of them is eternity. Eternity before the creation of the world, eternity after the judgment of Christ. When time will be no more. So this present age refers to time, clearly, age, time. So this is a time issue. And the threefold is basically a twofold with something added. And the, the twofold is basically Old Testament and New Testament in one sense, but it's Old Covenant and New Covenant. It's, it's old, old dispensation and New Dispensation in this sense. It's the it's the age before the Messiah and the age of the Messiah when the grace of God has appeared, but there is constant reference to a third age, which is the kingdom of Christ. Now, 
The reason why that one's a little more difficult is because that one is inaugurated in time, but is not in time. In other words, Jesus comes in human time, but he establishes a kingdom that is not temporal. Do I understand that? No, I do not. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. We can't understand eternity. All we can do is talk about it. And the only way we can know to talk about eternity is to say, well, it's not time. It's, it's when time will be no more. That makes no sense to us. If we act like that makes sense to us, we're nutcases. There just is no way we can understand eternity until we experience it, and that requires our glorification. Even in our bodies, so long as you have a heart going thump, 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 and you're, we hope it's doing that, then you got time in your body. We're going to have to have a glorified body that doesn't go thump, 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 or we're not eternal. We're not experiencing eternity. So this is the present age. So this is the age between when the grace of God appears and when the Lord returns in glory. It's, it's the age between, just as the Apostle Paul says in this very brief passage, when the grace of God's appeared to all people, and then we have the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, described as the blessed hope. Let me, let me just show you a couple things in very close proximity. 1 Timothy 6, 17. A few pages over. You don't have to look very far in Paul to understand this is an incredibly distinct and essential category for the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The, the point is, in this present age. So, and by, and by the way, who's going to be rich in the next age? All in Christ, sharing in his infinite riches. But those who are rich in this present age, and you'll notice it's the same exact word sequence. I don't know, some English teacher is going to say, same and exact mean the same thing. But we do it for emphasis. You'll notice the same word sequence, this present age or the present age. The second Timothy just right over in the same neighborhood, chapter 4, verse 10. Do your best to come to me, verse 9, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You say, well, that's different. That's this present world. Well, actually, that's more of a translation issue. <laughs> in other words, it, it's talking about the same thing. It's this present age. It's this present world. Sometimes in the New Testament, this is described as the present evil age. Paul does this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, when he describes Christ. And, and by the way, that's another one. Just We, we have a minute. That's, that's another one worth looking at. Just very quickly, let's look at Galatians because those introductory words will be a good place for us to end. Paul, an apostle, not from men, 
nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and to all brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a way of looking at that and recognizing how Pauline this is, how typical this is. And so when Paul talks about this age, the long expression is the present evil age. And so at least we have this very clear dichotomy that when the grace of God has appeared, meaning Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we put all the language together. And, and so the Apostle Paul says, here's how our time is measured. Here's how, here's how time is divided. It is divided between the time before the grace of God appearing and now the grace of God has appeared. But then we're waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior in what he describes as an appearing, which is the blessed hope, so between here and there, what we've seen is this passage, this, this series of words comes up again and again, this present age, or as in Galatians, this present evil age. He doesn't have to throw evil in here. It's just this present age. This is where the church is. This is, this is who the church is. The church is the people of Christ in the present age. And we've got a lot to do in the present age. The Apostle Paul, just in this very brief theological passage, this theological reset, he says, just, you know, folks, remember who you are and what you're here for. They're squabbling in Crete over circumcision and the law and all the rest. And he says, stop it. Rebuke those who are doing it. And instead, lean into the truth of the gospel because the grace of God has appeared. Live lives of self-control. Get a hold of yourselves. Devote yourselves to the gospel. Looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wanted us to look at that particular phrase just to be reminded of God's glory in the church and frankly, God's command to the church that we're to live holy lives. We're to be fully engaged on behalf of Christ. We're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're to gather together every Lord's Day for worship in this present age. How long does this present age last? Well, the son said, only the father knows. So this is where we're living in this present age, between the appearing of the grace of God and the appearing again of the grace of God. One inaugurates this present age and one ends it. We're between those two appearings. So we're about to worship. And everything we say and do and sing is about what it means to praise God between two appearings in this present age. And I don't know what that means to you. To me, it just adds all the more weight and significance and glory to what we get to do in Christian worship. So let's pray and get to it. Father, we're just so thankful that in a little passage like this, through the Apostle Paul, you've concentrated so much explosive truth that it blows up every theological category we have and resets us to see this present age and our responsibility in it between the appearing of the grace of God 
and the appearing of the grace of God in the blessed hope. Father, we pray to be faithful in this age. We thank you for salvation, which assures us of the age to come. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you.